Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. The Iron Flute, Case 85. Gensha and the Iron Boat. When Gensha was practicing Zen under Seppo, a brother monk named Ko said, If you can attain something in Zen, I will make an iron boat and sail the high seas. Fugai's comment, a logical statement. Many years later, Gensha became a Zen master, and Ko was his inji. One day, Gensha asked Ko, Have you built your iron boat? Fugai, are you trying to sink that boat? Ko remained silent. Fugai, the boat floats all right. Yogen Senzaki's comment. Gensha was ordained as a monk when he was 30 years old. Before that, he had been a fisherman. Some of the monks scornfully called him the impossible one. Ko's comment was in this vein, because at the time, a metal ship epitomized the impossible. His remark probably encouraged Gensha's practice. So he was indebted to Ko in that regard. When Gensha had completed his training, Ko entered his monastery and became his attendant. I admire Ko's modesty and perseverance and do not believe Gensha asked his question in retaliation, but as an equivalent for attainment. It was just an intimate family conversation. Genro's comment. If I were Ko, I would say, have you attained your Zen? Fugai's comment. <laughs> Genro's verse. An iron boat froze on the sea. The koan from the past is fulfilled. Do not say ko kept silent. Uncle Gensha. Have you attained? And now Fugai's comments on each line. An iron boat froze on the sea. Fugai, I would not like to sail in that boat. The koan from the past is fulfilled. Fugai, don't mention the past. Live in the present. Do not say ko kept silent. Fugai. What could he do? Uncle Gensha, have you attained? Fugai. Dae said, 
after 18 attainments, all attainments flourish. Nanush, Seha will make room for you if you need to sit back a little bit. The sixth day of our golden wind session. To say it's a beautiful day is completely impossible to describe what we feel. Hmm? Both Ryoju and Geno spoke about the beauty of y'all. That's your beauty that sees the beauty. This intimacy the golden wind, the golden leaves, golden hearts. So today we meet Gensha Shibi. He was um, a Dharma heir of Seppo. He lived from 835 to 908. And so he was a brother monk to Ummon, whom we met, remember, some days ago. Both practiced under Seppo. And Gensha helped Seppo develop his monastery. Call, we don't know anything about, really. So probably he was just a regular monk practicing along with Gensha and Umon and about a thousand other monks at Seppo's place.
one day a new monk came to Gensha's place after he had his own monastery, and he said, I've just arrived. Please tell me, how shall I enter Zen? Gensha said, Do you hear the sound of Beecher Creek? With all the work on the dam, we can probably hear it again, right? So the monk said, yes. Gensha said, enter from here. So in this koan, Gensha and his brother monk have a meeting. Ko says to Gensha, if you can attain something in Zen, I will make an iron boat and sail the high seas. How do you feel about that? Fugai says it's a logical statement. Well, on the surface, at least, it seems like a rather rude remark, doesn't it? And a remark that conveyed the disdain, the scorn that most of the monks felt toward Gensha. You old fisherman, how can someone like you, so unsophisticated, such an uneducated rube, how can you ever get it? And thus the moniker for Gensha at Seppo's place was the impossible one. Maybe you remember a young, illiterate woodcutter. Anybody remember who this might be? Winun. Eno, who went on to become the sixth ancestor of Zen. He too was disparaged. And as some of you know from reading the Platform Sutra, he went to the fifth ancestor's place after hearing someone chanting the Diamond Sutra. He was taking a load of firewood to the person's shop and awakened to the line, developed a mind that abides on nothing whatsoever. Hmm? 
So his first encounter when he went to the fifth ancestor Hunjun's place, the fifth ancestor asked him, where are you from? And what do you hope to attain? Eno said, I'm from Lingnan, which Lingnan means south of the ranges, south of the Nanling mountains. And I want to be a Buddha. Very simple. Nothing else. And Hongjun said, but you're from Lingnan, and you're a jungle rat, by which he meant you're not a Han Chinese. You're from an ethnic minority. How can you possibly become a Buddha? The young Eno said, people come from the north or south, not their Buddha nature. The lives of this jungle rat and the masters aren't the same. But how can our Buddha nature differ? Now, as we, I'm sure, have all experienced, sometimes a stinging comment a biting phrase is just the turning word we need. And it had an impact on Gensha, as Yogan Senzaki said in his comment. So Ko may have been in keeping with the general attitude toward this impossible one, it's impossible for him to succeed. So he goaded him. And we don't really know if Cole was just representing the general attitude of the monastery or whether he had himself some sense of something in Gensha. Maybe you, you may think of perhaps someone in your own practice, maybe in early days, who pushed you. Not a teacher, not someone who attained some degree of renown, but a comment that someone made that rankled, that got under your skin, that had some long-lasting impact. I remember a dear Sangha member, brother monk, named Dogo Don Scanlon. He had been a prize fighter And I mentioned him another time to you. He was in Ripley's Believe It or Not for 
having been knocked out more than any other person in his weight class. And then he became a junkie. And then somehow he found a yoga class and he started, this is way back in the late 60s, and found out about Zazen and started sitting. And at that time, when we were going to New York Zendo, um, my first husband and I were living out in the country, and he was, my first husband was getting uh, into a rather deep, dark place, and was also fancying himself a weekend junkie, and I was very concerned, and kept suggesting, maybe you could come to the Zendo with me, or, yeah. So I invited Dogo to come out for a visit. And we decided we would have a cookout. And my first husband set up the barbecue thing and kept trying to light the coals, and nothing was happening. And Dogo took a look at him, and he said, you're really helpless, aren't you? Next morning, he started sitting. Never missed from that point on. Well, in Gensha's case, his receptivity to what Ko said was particularly vulnerable. His heart had already been torn open long before he ever got to Seppo's place. The story goes that he and his father had gone out fishing, and a terrible storm came up. The waves were really crashing over the boat, and his father fell into the ocean. And no matter what he tried, he couldn't save him. And his father drowned. Such grief. Blaming himself. He had tried his best. Didn't work. And in the most incredibly painful state of remorse, he decided he would become a monk. Already he was in his 30s. And as a monk, he led a life of asceticism, of constant purification, and absolute diligence. And I think this kind of remorse, perhaps some of you have experienced too. I wanted to tell you another story. This took place at the Zen Center of Syracuse. 
in 2003, we had a resident named Ryose, and she had a, a fling with some guy and didn't think any more of it. And then she found that she was pregnant. What to do? I don't have my own place. I don't have a father for my baby. What? I want to keep my baby. So we said, the residents and I, we talked it over, and we said, okay, we'll try. Let's, let's see what we can do together. And along came August, and on August 27th, Morgan Kyla Bizell was born. And at the time, our head monk was Ensu. Some of you remember Ensu. He was training here for many years and in Japan at Shogenji and Yamakawa Roshi's other temple too, Kokokuji, and then returned. He had been a very uh, kind of uh, wild-eyed AIDS activist when I first met him as a young college boy, and he's very dear to me over all these years. But anyway, Ensu was a great help with the baby. He just adored this baby. I have a lot of pictures of him holding Morgan. So she was born August 27th, as I said, and two months later, there was a freak ice storm, and Rose and the baby were in a terrible car accident. And the baby's head injuries were severe, and they were both in the hospital in different places. Of course, baby was in infant uh, ICU. Sunday evening, October 26th, she died. And uh, many of us from Hoenji were there and chanting Heart Sutra. And I stayed with Ryose and Ensu spent the night with the baby. As you may know, most hospitals don't allow the body to remain in the room. But the infant ICU was wonderful. And so terrible remorse terrible trauma for the mother. And the following month, she came with me here for Thanksgiving. And we sat with Ada Roshi in the meeting room, tears rolling down his face.
these kinds of dreadful incidents happen and change us forever. And for someone like Gensha, it was the start of his life. For Yose, she moved away. I performed the wedding of. Uh, she, she and another woman from the Sangha were married before New York State passed a law allowing that. So we did it in Canada and then had a party at Hoenji. And now she has two children with her wife. So today is the 27th of September, 2019. In Judaism, this Sunday, Days of awe begin. A 10-day period starting with Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. September 29th, 2019 is the first day of Tishrei, 5,780 and as always, new moon. The night will be pitch dark. And it's a time, these 10 days, of deep introspection into our thoughts, our words, our deeds. And we often find remorse, regret, and feel such deep apology. And 10 days later, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, fasting, prayer, and again and again, confession, we do it not just once, not just in the morning, but throughout the day. So, past thoughts, words, actions. Somehow, this feeling of true repentance. leads to what is called teshuva, return. To return to one, we say in Zen. To return to God. It doesn't matter what we 
call it, does it? How can we call it? To return to that which cannot be named. To return right here and now to this. And it brings a real sense of renewal, renewal of our vow, a recommitment to a life of diligence. And this high point, if you will, of the Jewish calendar is what we are doing in Seshim every single day and realizing, too, that session never ends if we are practicing for real. Every day is a day of atonement. Every day is a day of joy. Hakuin, in his Ruohatsu Exhortations, quotes Dogen. You may remember this. A day of diligence is a day of preciousness. A hundred years of laziness brings hundred years of regret. So with this new year, with this new sitting, we acknowledge shortcomings. We forgive ourselves as others and others as ourselves. And we're written once again in the Book of Life. So what year is it? BCE 5780. B.C. 2020, about to come. But what is the beginning? What year did this all begin, really? Anybody know? When did the universe begin? Cosmologists are investigating origin. They come to the origin. Oh, a new origin. There's one beyond that. There's something beyond the beyond. What about that Big Bang and before that? What is the origin of Mu? Last night's stars. 
When were they born? When did they die? We're not just seeing them. We are made of them. So we see ourselves up there. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. This is true intimacy. This is what we are doing here. Heart Sutra, we chant no birth and death, no old age and death, birth and old age and birth and no end to birth and you know how it goes, I can't remember. <laughs> Something like that, right? No old age and death and no end to old age and death. Mm. There's a uh, Chinese couplet that I think fits here very well. An eternity of endless space, a day of wind and moon. Well, the Buddha wasn't interested in date lines. He had absolutely no comment when it came to when did it all begin? And when is it going to end these days? There's a lot of talk about that, right? End times. But, the Buddha said, Take note of cause and effect. Look around. See the karmic linkage that you're a part of. On a global scale, we're seeing this playing out in a very dramatic way. We call it climate change or global warming. And we get the bulletins to the point where we don't want to read them anymore. The birds are going extinct at an inconceivable rate. The glaciers melting, the Arctic on fire, the Amazon on fire, fish populations decreasing, oceans clogged with plastic. I don't have to go on. You all know the horrors of human-caused climate crisis. And despite All these warnings, what's really changing, what's really being done in a way that meets the urgency of this time? 
Well, we know our political systems are based on the three poisons, right? Greed, we have to keep producing and consuming. It's an economic imperative. Greed, right? Anger, don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to live. And willful ignorance. There's nothing to worry about. We the people who count, will be fine. Just ignore that other 95% of the planet. So, you know, money talks and policy listens. Of course there are are people who know what's happening, who see it firsthand, who find their farms drying up, who see their fields flooded, their homes being washed away or burned. And we can't ignore, and at the same time we feel overwhelmed, I think, at the sheer scale of the global disaster that's already here. And, of course, technology is trying all kinds of new things, including to go along with fake news, fake food. Don't worry. We're making meat. It's true. So our practice is not to withdraw and to go deeply into the heart of our wide awake being. It's both and. We don't retreat. This is not a retreat, by the way. When you get back, if somebody says, how was your retreat? You can tell them, filled with remorse. (laughs) It's not just a matter of swinging back and forth between the two poles of hope and despair. That's not what is needed. We must own this. We must feel remorse for what we humans have done to this planet. And we can't say, well, I live an impeccable life. I don't have any responsibility for this. 
because we're all complicit. Why? We use, we consume, and we continue consuming, and we continue producing to satisfy an illusion of need that leads to greed, anger, and ignorance. We believe the illusion. And it's too easy to blame industry, right? What is industry? Who are they? Who's buying? It starts with our addiction to new stuff, to comfort, to convenience. So facing this is what we're doing. We are in wide awake session mind. We have to see it. We have to resolve to stop, okay? The Buddha's third noble truth. We might say this third noble truth is just say no. Thank you, Nancy Reagan. Just say no the next time you think, I need. Just move. Next time you walk into a store by mistake, (laughs) just reuse the best clothing is old. Do you know why? It used to be made in the USA. I know that's a political statement. I'm sorry. (laughs) Old, well-made things last forever. I'm still wearing clothes from the 70s, and they're much better than anything I bought since the 90s. Oh, for those old 70s things, ah, there's that too. Commodity, commodity. So we have to change our ways. Just look ahead 30 years from now and think about session. How will we do it? There's no fuel. How will people get here? How will we feed them? 
This is up to us. This isn't some sort of abstraction. We have to change. We have to pay attention. We have to learn from our indigenous elders. They still know how to live in harmony with respect and gratitude to all the plants, the trees, the rocks, the mountains, the water, the animals, the birds, the fish. We have to listen to Mother Earth. We have to take care of Mom. And to do all this, we have to vote. In September 2014, we began Golden Wind Session, and about 675,000 people from all over the world were marching 80 city blocks worth in Manhattan. Some of you may have been there, insisting that we take responsibility for the degradation of our planet five years ago. Okay, September 20th, 2019. Who is there? on that. Right? Good. The day before this golden wind session began, five days before the Wednesday this past week climate summit at the United Nations, young people led the largest worldwide mass protest for action on global economy all over the world. And, of course, they were inspired in large degree not only by their having their eyes open to what's going on, but by this marvelous young Swedish climate activist, Greta Thunberg, She's 16, and she said, yes, the climate crisis is the most complex issue that we have ever faced, and it's going to take everything from our part to stop it. But the solution is black and white. We need to stop the emissions of greenhouse gases, because either we limit the warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade over pre-industrial levels, or we don't. That's simple enough, right? Either we re reach a tipping point where we start a chain reaction with events way beyond human control, or we don't. Either we go on as a civilization, or we don't. There are no gray areas when it comes to survival. We need to treat the crisis as a crisis. When your house is on fire, you don't sit down and talk about how nicely you can rebuild it once you put the fire out. And Buddhism teaches there is no separation 
What happens in Indonesia affects us directly. What we do in our industrial plants all over the world affects every creature. And we know the story in the Lotus Sutra of the burning house. Or if we don't, we'd better read it. To bring a real sense of urgency to waking up. We can't ignore. And we must actualize our realization as we chant, opening this dharma. Or another term, tikkun olam, this means, this is a Jewish phrase for taking responsibility for repairing the world. They aren't going to do it, in case you hadn't noticed. We are. Do you agree? Those of you who are under 30, raise your hands. It's a lot to take on. We put you in this situation. We are obligated to stand behind you, march with you. You know, to sit is to work on inner climate change. That's really what it means. When we change ourselves, we change everything. We chant, We vow to hear all cries and to speak out on behalf of those who cannot speak, those who have been silenced, scorned for being a fisherman or whatever their occupations might be, janitor, nurse's aide, out-of-work factory man and woman, scorned for where they come from, scorned for their race, their sexuality, their gender. And the marks of this scorn are very deep. I can tell you as a woman born in 1943, 
they may be different now, but the messages we got were basically what Geno was talking about. You're no good. You'll never be any good. You'll never make it. You'll never be what it takes to run an organization or to do something that has any lasting impact. And whatever you do, you will always compare yourself to the way it should be done, which is the way a man would do it. I still feel that. These are not things it's easy to just say goodbye to. Oh, women's women's liberation, okay, that's over. I don't think so. The same with racism. The wounds are so deep. 400 years. People who are my age or a little bit younger who came through realizing they were gay before Stonewall, never feeling accepted by the greater society, always thinking there's something wrong with me. Well, speaking of women, I wanted to read a couple of poems to you from the Terigata. The first Buddhist nuns, the elders, First one is called Soma, happiness. He said, How could a woman who knows no more than how to cook, clean, and make babies possibly reach the other shore? On the way to which so many good men have drowned or turned back. I said, the mind is neither male nor female. When directed toward the arising and passing away of all things, it easily penetrates this mass of darkness. Be serious. What's a few inches of meat compared to the immeasurable reaches of the liberated mind? 
Sounds a bit like Winung. And this one is called Dhamma. So you can imagine the plight of these first nuns, many of whom were running from abusive marriages, others who were in terrible poverty and not accepted by the greater Sangha, thought of as very strange. This Dhamma poem. Another day walking in circles with an empty bowl. Leaning on my staff in the middle of the road, my whole body shaking with hunger. What little strength I had left, left me. As I was falling to the ground, I saw I was the spoonful of rice, and this whole world, the bowl. You can't miss, even if you try. Well, Gensha, we are going to get back to him. After his father drowned and he became a monk and received that cutting, sarcastic remark, Oh, for you, Mr. Impossible, gaining insight is about as likely as sailing in an iron boat. Sometime after that, he went on pilgrimage. And he was really immersed in contemplation of shunyata. The shunyata of all phenomena and walking along, all of a sudden, he stubbed his toe on a rock. (laughs) In the midst of that cry of pain came a blazing question. If all is emptiness, where does this terrible pain come from? And pain, question, and realization all at the same moment burst forth. And he went on to become Seppo's Dharma heir. And we heard about Umon with his leg broken at that moment of terrible pain. Ah! Getting enlightened. And some of you know about Gute's boy attendant having his finger slice off. (sighs) Amazing enlightenment. Now I understand. So you may think, well, there's no hope for me unless unless some so-called accident happens.
happens. And even then, can I really count on it? <laughs> but you know, it's not, obviously, it's not the physical pain that sometimes does result in an awakening, but it can be anything. It can be a life of deep pain. It can be a life lived with such intensity. It can be something that has been so traumatic that has been buried for years and years and years and suddenly in the midst of session there it is and everything changes it can be terrible loss illness the certitude of death In all of these things, there is one common thread, if you will, and that is extremity. It's very rare, in my experience, that someone just slides into enlightenment. We have to put ourselves in Please don't take this the wrong way. I'm going to say it anyway. We have to put ourselves in harm's way. I don't mean you should go out and stand in front of the bulldozer down there. I mean, don't hesitate. Don't draw back. Be willing to take the risk. to stand up, to say no, no more. And just to sit with all your might until every thought, every belief, everything you ever knew is gone. There are a couple of haiku in uh, Soen Roshi's work. Um, this is from Endless Vow. And they really express what I'm talking about. Uh, when he was very young, it was 1931, and he was living... in the mountains, sometimes on Mount Daivasatsu and other mountains, and writing haiku.
March 10th, 1931. A young wanderer who is exhausting himself on the great matter of birth and death visits Meibaku Hut, where I have secluded myself on the night of the full moon, March 10th. Although he and I have never met before, we immediately feel a strong bond and we talk all night. The haiku. Sho and no mata musubarete tsuki akaki. Extraordinary link. We find each other again. Bright moon. And the next day, March 11th, which would be Sonoshi's death day, many years later. The next morning, he writes in his journal, the sky and the ground are thick with snow, our hearts leaping ahead of us. My new friend and I leave on a walking pilgrimage toward Tokyo through Daibosatsu Pass. All beings are soundless, and the contours of the mountain ridges vanish into heaven's eternal breath. At the pass, deep with snow and illuminated by the moon, my friend experiences Kensho, the liberation of seeing into his true nature. We yell back and forth to each other, holding hands and tumbling in the snow like madmen. And the haiku, Arigata ya namida ni tokasu yama no yuki. Gratitude. Tears melting into mountain snow. Well, we can just go to Genro's verse at the end of this short koan. An iron boat froze on the sea. You might see this as Ko's taunt coming back to him when years later he was serving Gensha as Inji. And Gensha asked, Have you built your iron boat? You remember what Ko taunted Gensha? If you can attain something in Zen, I'll make an iron boat and sail the high seas. Have you built your iron boat? And to that, Fugai says, Are you trying to sink that boat? What did Ko do? Remained silent. 
And Fugai says admiringly, that boat floats all right. So the koan from the past is fulfilled, Genro says in his second line. Going back to those days at Seppo's monastery, was Gensha able at that time to say anything to Ko? No. Was Ko now able to say something to Gensha? Remained silent. And silence says it all. How can it be spoken of? So Genro asks, Uncle Gensha, have you attained? What about you? Are you sailing your iron boat across all the seas? And then that last comment from Fugai, he quotes Dai, the great Zen master, who said, after 18 attainments, all attainments flourish. Have you been counting? Hakuin Zenji said he had 18 great Kensho experiences and innumerable small enlightenments. All attainments flourish. To really see into your true nature, there is no counting. There is no attainment. It is just every moment, every breath, and as we chant in the Heart Sutra, no path. No wisdom, no attainment. Indeed, there is nothing to be attained. Already shining this marvelous gift of today. Perfect and complete. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.